so you think you've got predator problems on your farmer ranch? Well, Liesel and Cody Lockhart from Saskatchewan, Canada, raise sheep and cattle among coyotes, mountain lions, bears, and wolves. Liesel's here to tell us how her livestock guardian dogs won the battle against them all, but then proved helpless against another unexpected predator that fundamentally changed their sheep operation. Welcome to Farm Dog. This is Farm Dog, the podcast about the working dogs of farming, ranching, homesteading, and rural living. Farm Dog is presented by Goats on the Go, a national network of independent business owners who provide sustainable weed and brush control for their customers using goats. Want to put goats to work on your vegetation problem? Interested in launching your own goat grazing business? The place to start is goatsonthego.com. Lisa Lockhart, welcome to Farm Doc. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Um, for our audience out there, Liesel is from um, Candle Lamb and Cattle Company, way, way up north in Saskatchewan, or can you give us some idea where you are geographically? You know what? We're just a little further than halfway north of Saskatchewan, but it's a whole lot of forest north of us, so we're feels like we're on the tip of civilization sometimes up here. Okay, so just to give us an idea, uh, give our listeners an idea, how far are you from... Like what's the, what's the nearest town of say ten thousand or more people? The nearest town would be Prince Albert, and that's about an hour south east of us. Uh, Saskatoon is two hours straight south, and that's about three hundred thousand people. So we're a little ways from town, but um, the small town communities are still doing quite well up here, and uh, we still have schools and stores every fifteen minutes on the highway. So. That's uh, pretty nice. Things are quite uh, lively, even where we're from. We feel like we're local because we're only five minutes from town. Our kids only have a five-minute school bus. And yet, we're pretty close to a large national park. So, there's a lot of land around us, a lot of open um, forested land that goes on pretty well to the Northwest Territories. Okay, excellent. Um, uh- Liesl, I first came and became aware of you and your ranch because of this really nicely done video that I stumbled across online. It was produced by People and Carnivores. Um, it focused on your ranch's use of livestock guardian dogs as a solution to um, predator control on your ranch. And um, I wonder if you could, I know your ranch and operation has changed quite a bit since that video was done, but I wonder if you could just give us some background, like in as far as um, your agricultural background, how you came to be on the ranch. Um, take us up to that point in 2013, I believe it was, when it was shot. Sure. I don't actually have a background in agriculture, um, but I married a rancher. Um, we ended up moving up to this country, Debden, Saskatchewan, about 12 years ago due to severe drought down in Alberta. Um, So we moved up here by ourselves, and we started by running a lot of cattle, and that was quite a learning curve. My husband's a rancher, so he knew all about cattle. But as we settled in and decided to stay, we really tried to find a complementary grazing species for this operation, and that led us to sheep. So we started down the road of sheep and uh, had about six-month grace period, only bought about 60 ewes. 
and nothing touched them for six months. So we got a few more. And uh, then we learned all about predation. So after that, we started losing ewes, lambs daily, like clockwork. Um, and we realized we were really up against it and something had to be done. And when we started, my husband just uh, sat in the bill stack at 5 a.m. and waited for the coyotes to come in. Um, that helped us for for a very short amount of time, and that's when we really plunged headlong into dog research and figuring out what we're going to do up here. Um, that led us to Livestock Guardian Dogs, and we bought as many as we could at that time, which was basically one or two mature dogs, and then we brought on board some pups. Um, our sheep operation continued to grow, and a couple dogs came with a flock of sheep that we bought. So it just continued to get uh, better and better, and our flock grew more and more. Um, but the dogs worked. They stopped the predation pretty well instantly up until that point. And that was just with some Pyrenees and some pups and uh, an Anatolian Shepherd Cross at that time. Okay, great. And you, that video, by the way, I'll put a link to that video in the show notes here. That video highlights, however, the, the fact that you ended up with a mix of dog breeds after a while. And I wonder if you could let us know how that came to be. Sure. Well, we went from about those 60 sheep to about 1,200 sheep in, in just a couple of years. Wow. And uh, as, as we grew and our pastures really increased, uh, we realized we need a whole lot more dogs. And as I said, we bought, we bought a flock that came with two Anatolian Shepherds. And felt those were incredible dogs. But at that time, we lost, you know, our Marama. We lost one of the Anatolians to to predators. We've got wolves, bears, coyotes, cougars around this area. Um, so we were, we were losing some dogs to that. Um, so that's what brought us kind of to the, the Kangle is we needed something bigger and something that could cover you know, we've got about a 3,000 acre land base here, and the animals aren't ever on all of it at once, but we were split between cattle and sheep at that time. So we did need something that was a little bit more perimeter and could travel a little bit more, and then we also needed to grow our numbers. So out of necessity, we found ourselves with a mixed pack, and we learned very quickly from experience experience with our, our number one teacher of what to do and what not to do. Um, but we found they worked very, very well together. We found the Kangles were able to cover the, the distance and keep the large predators away. And the white dogs, we usually generalize with white or fluffy dogs, seem to really be stickier, stickier with the sheep and stayed close. And we found that basically by accident, right off the get-go, how complementary they are to each other. Okay, that's fascinating. So you were saying that the, the white dogs, the fluffy dogs, the Pyrenees and the Maremma stick closer. Um, but the, uh, the Great Pyrenees actually kind of has a reputation as being like a, a patrolling dog or, or a boundary dog. Are we just, do you think it's just the difference in scale? Like, you know, we think of a boundary dog down here in the Midwest as one that wanders the perimeter of two acres, but you're working with huge pastures. It's, and and maybe at that scale, the Pyrenees just really doesn't stretch that far out. You know what? I, I listened to your podcast on the fellow with the 25 dogs 
And uh, when he said that about the Pyrenees, I really wondered. They definitely have a have reputation for wandering up here as well, but that seems to be in an acreage setting where they don't have a land base, so they definitely do go beyond those boundaries. Um, we've always had a Pyrenees or two in the in the pack, and they've always been sticky. So that's our experience. I'm sure other people have other experiences as well. Um, but that seems to be our generalization. If the dog is fluffy, if the dog is white, they stick closer. That could just be just be what how it goes here, or maybe how we pigeonhole them and they they follow the they follow the label. I'm not sure, but the the Kangles have been GPS and they've gone 26 miles a night, and that's quite different than than any of the white dogs we have, which seem to never ever be away from the flock. Okay, this is great. And I think I could probably spend an hour talking about this. So I'm going to have to rein myself in, but let me ask you just a couple more follow-up questions about that. You've actually GPS the Kangles and they've gone 26 miles. Is that yeah, 26? Regularly, regular wow. nights. We've got some of the dogs we've sold, uh, a few of the owners have GPS collars on them daily because they're not, some of them aren't running large sheep operations, but they'd like to know where their dogs go. Um, and it's every single night and they go very interesting. The pattern is usually a star pattern. So they go out on one point, come into base, go out and come in. And they kind of do that all throughout the night. Um, the most our dogs have gone, as far as I know, we used to get a lot of phone calls in the beginning asking, you know, saying our dogs were halfway to the next county, but, uh, we help mitigate that by spray painting them and, and making them easily identified. So I didn't go out driving when anyone reported a white dog 20 miles away. Um, but uh, they did go to our neighbors who had sheep. They're about 10 miles down the road. And that became a bit of an issue because they didn't need our dogs there guarding their sheep. And we needed them at our house guarding our sheep. So they, they seem to work, work on their own schedule and, and it seems to be quite interesting with people GPSing and seeing what they've recorded throughout the night. So they're not um, they're not staying in with the within the boundaries of your fencing or within the boundaries of your pasture necessarily. They're going kind of out their own direction. Uh, those twenty six yeah. miles to the night. Yeah, and that was like those weren't our dogs. Those are ones we've sold, like out of pups from here. And again, I think that's an issue of small operations and the dogs looking for work. Um, our dogs seem to just bubble out from wherever our stock is. So if we've got stock a few miles down the road, we've definitely caught them traveling between two flocks or two groups of cattle or, you know, the cattle and the sheep. And we've seen them cover that territory. Um, Fencing, they don't, the tangles don't respect. They can get through or over or under anything. We've had them in elk fence and they climbed it. Um, so fencing, we've, we've never real, relied on that as a, a bonding mechanism, working more with really encouraging solid bonding from puppyhood. Um, but they travel, but as our pack has matured and gotten older, I noticed they've stayed a lot closer to home now or, or a lot closer to the flock. They seem to have less to do or less reason to leave, I guess. And that could also be because they've got a boundary well-established and there's less to be done further out now. Mm -hmm. 
And are you, have you noticed a difference in their bonding to your sheep and the distance they travel as you have produced your own pups on your own place and raised them locally? Uh, you know, you mentioned when you, when you first got started, you were bringing in adult dogs and you'd buy a flock mm -hmm. with a couple of dogs and that sort of thing. Did they seem to graft directly to the flock right away and to the local landscape or did that improve over time as you raised more of your own pups? You know what, looking back, I'm, I'm amazed at how well the dogs worked that we brought together. We had some pack conflicts, but back then the dogs knew more about what they were doing than we did. So it was fairly seamless where now if I bring a mature dog and I'm pretty nervous about what's going to happen and there's maybe it's just knowing more of the problems that can happen. But we really, really try not to bring anything mature in any longer because we, we lost a couple dogs to pet conflict as well back then. Um, the dogs we've raised definitely have turned out to be just stellar dogs. Um, two of the dogs in that video, one is still alive. Well, several are still alive, but one, one uh, Anatolian female just died this fall. She was 14. And uh, our former stud dog is 12 and he's still working here. So those two dogs created some really amazing lines of dogs for us over the years. And um, we're really the core foundation of our pack. Let's, let's go back to this concept of stickiness. I love that, that term applied to, to guardian dogs. What, what would you define as sticky? Um, what are the characteristics of a sticky dog and what is their range typically over the course of a night? How far do they get from the flock? Cause I think that this is a relative term that is going to be, you know, to you, a sticky dog would probably drive a small acreage owner in Iowa crazy, you know, because it's out on the road, it's away from home. They're getting phone calls. Mm -hmm. So what's the sticky dog to you? I can't take credit for the word sticky. I learned that word from, um, Steve Skelton at Blackleaf Guardians this last fall or last year, he started saying that word and it just suits the, describing the dog so well. Um, a sticky dog for me is we have a couple dogs who are never, never more than, I would say a quarter kilometer away from the flock or never outside of the fence from the flock. So no matter where the sheep are, that dog is in front of them or behind them or in the middle of them. And we've always had several dogs that do not leave the flock ever. Um, then I have a few dogs who actually stay right in the pens, unless you open the gate, they're going to stay right in the lamb pens. Um, or I've got other dogs who I don't see half the day and they come in at night for food, but I can hear them barking, you know, a couple miles out even. So sticky, I would say, and when I say a sticky dog, I say that if you see your flock, you see the dog. Okay. All right. Is it possible for a dog to be too sticky or to have too many sticky dogs and, and not enough? So. No. Um, I guess you could like, depends how good they are at, at actually defending the flock. Um, when we first began, the pressure was very heavy, primarily from coyotes and we needed the tangles to take them out. The problem coyotes. So back then, our sticky dogs, the Pyrenees, did a great job of barking and the sheep flocked up right tight to the dogs, but they were not pursuing anything. 
um, the Kangles came in and dealt with the problem. So, you know, if, if a dog stays with the flock, that's your number one defense. But um, sometimes those problem animals do need to be removed at some point. And has your biggest problem been coyotes or you mentioned wolves in the video, you said you also have bears and, and mountain lions. What's, what's, what keeps you up at night the most? Uh, raven, actually. <laughs> but really? That can't, be solved with that can't be solved with a dog because we have solved all the other issues with a dog. Um, no coyotes just because of the, num the actual numbers of coyotes. There'd be hundreds of thousands of coyotes around this country. We had a, a local trapper say, you know, if he took a thousand out of spring, you would never notice a difference. So the coyotes are just our number one problem because they're plentiful. The wolves backed off as soon as we started running, you know, 15 dogs in the earlier days in the big pack. They just went, went somewhere else simply. They don't want to fight to get their meal. There's a lot easier things to eat just down the road. Um, but coyotes seems like every fall there's there's dumb pups kicked out and they want to try to get an easy snack. So just by sheer volume of numbers, those those are still our you know our number one predator. We don't lose things to bears or cats, maybe cows occasionally to cats. Um, but um, ravens are actually our number one predator and uh, have been the most difficult to find a solution for. And you have not found that the dogs are a solution for that at, to any degree? They bark, they bark and they chase and the ravens play with them. So I actually, I feel pretty bad for them because they'll bark and chase ravens all day long, but the ravens just keep swooping low and whether it's trying to get dog food or uh, they're especially hard on lambs, baby lambs. Actually, that's one of the main reasons we changed our whole flock and our lambing style was because we were able to control the big predators, but not the ravens. Okay. All right. So that's a perfect segue and a good opportunity for me to just kind of take a break and ask you uh, a question that I try to ask all of our guests, which is you've not by now had, it sounds like dozens of dogs and you may have grown up around other dogs or been exposed to other farm dogs over the years. So I always ask our guests, do you have a favorite farm dog in your memory or perhaps just a favorite farm dog event or happening, a favorite farm dog memory that you'd like to share with us? Um, I grew up with one dog in my life. That was it. Coming from a non-agricultural background. Um, but these dogs, so these dogs really opened my, my eyes to the world of dog breeds, basically. Um, and they were a learning curve when we first got them. And we used to have to move our land is split on either side of a very busy road. We call it a highway, but it, it's not like a highway where you, you'd be used to. Um, so we'd have to run 1,200 ewes and their lambs down the road up and down a few miles twice a year minimum. And the neatest thing is you can usually call the dog and the sheep will follow the dog. So as long as someone is in front that the dogs know calling them, They'll lead the way through the gate. They know where the gates are. And you'll see, you know, 2,000 animals run after the dog, which works great until they see a gopher in the farmer's field. 
off on the right. <laughs> and you see 2,000 sheep take a sharp right-hand turn into the farmer's field chasing the dogs who are chasing gophers. <laughs> so we had a little bit of learning experience that way and calling the dogs back and the massive flock of sheep does a U-turn right out of the farmer's field back down onto the road and and uh, away we go. So we've had to kind of learn to mitigate that, but um, for the so most part, they're very interesting how they, they live so independently and uh, they seem to know their job, whether we're there or not. Yeah. So that's a favorite, a favorite farm dog memory now, but I'm sure at the time that was not, you, you did not see the humor in that, I would imagine. No, <laughs> I don't yeah. think the neighbor did either. <laughs> <laughs> My friend and business partner is fond of saying, if the wheels don't completely fall off every now and again, what stories will you have to tell? So yeah. that's one yeah, of those moments. Of <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, you've, you've, alluded to the fact that your operation is significantly different now. So can you just kind of let our listeners in on what has changed over the years and how has that affected the number of dogs, the types of dogs and how you apply them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say we had, um, we had a, a fairly large grass-based uh, flock. Um, but as we became better shepherds, I guess you could say, we realized there is a lot of variables that um, we couldn't control out on the grass. Where we live, our growing season is very short. We're more like a nine months, eight months of winter. Um, the grass only grows from June 1st, if you're lucky, to September 1st. So we were finding our lambs, if they were born on grass, they just weren't big enough when they hit fall and winter to continue to gain because it became cold right away. So our feed costs were quite high, trying to finish lambs in the middle of minus 40 winters. Um, so that was one factor. Another factor was the ravens, which I said, if a ewe had twins, which we wanted, uh, she'd often lay down to have a second one, and the ravens would be watching and, and uh, kill the first lamb before she could get back up. So we were losing lambs that way. Um, and then another big one was just mothering up and, and weather. So if, if we had a week of really cold, wet rain, we lost lambs. If we moved, you know, with a flock that big, if we moved pastures, we had mismothering issues and we lost lambs. Um, so we decided um, to try to do an intensive lambing situation where everyone lambs in a barn. And we took our pasture flock and tried that for one year. And they were pretty horrible at it. Most of them just jumped out of their jugs and, and had no interest in lambing in a barn. Um, so we actually sold the entire flock and bought new uh, prolific sheep that are you know used to an intensive system. And by controlling all those variables, we multiply, multiply our lamb crop, lamb crop by quite a bit. So instead of selling you know 1.2 lambs for you on a good year, now we're selling minimum three lambs for you most years with lambing several times a year. So just sheep are a little different. We learned we initially when we got into sheep, we treated them like small cows because that's what we knew. Um, we learned quite quickly we can double our profits or triple our profits by not treating them like small cows. And um, it's really changed the way we do our lamb operation now. And it's it's going very well because of it. And again, huge learning curve. 
on, on doing an intensive system. Um, for a few years in between there, we just coasted with the dogs. We had quite a few dogs and I started selling off some of our older dogs because we didn't need them and a lot of people need mature dogs. Um, so we coasted and we felt our predation was, was under control until um, about two years ago, we went down to four dogs and all of a sudden everything was back. So instead of being killed out on pasture, we had coyotes in the front yard killing user rams right in the pens. And that was a wake up call to, to get more dogs and, and time to get back at it because we had been coasting for so many years without any challenges here. Oh my goodness. So the problem was still, was still lurking out there. It just, they were just waiting for the right opportunity or to get bold enough or rebuild their numbers. Yep. Yep. And we were just complacent. We thought, you know, we handled it and, and we have a free pass with lamps outside and, and use outside, but the coyotes, as soon as we were down far enough in dogs and, and we let our pass get very old, um, they were right there waiting again. So it was a bit of a wake up call and now we've, we've upped our dog numbers again and, and we've got a really a good core back again and young dogs and feel we're back on top with, with predator wise. <laughs> so give me an idea of the scale. You went from thousands of acres of pasture to um, just geographically, how much space does your operation occupy now? And is it a combination of buildings and dry lots, building dry lots and some pasture? How does that work? It is, yep. So we went from grazing our sheep, uh, I'm not sure, do you talk in quarters or acres or sections? Probably most of our audience will understand acres a little better, probably. Okay. Okay, so we had um, our sheep are grazing a, an area about, uh, to say it was about 400 acres all split into pastures, maybe actually 600 total once you went through and we rotationally grazed all those pastures. Um, but they were split into about 12 pastures. So we tried to keep acres down between 40 and 80 just for the predation and the mothering. Um, and that was away from our yard and our house. Um, there were also some other uh, pastures a few miles away that would have been 160 acres off on their own um, that our sheep would go graze at certain times of the year. Um, now our, our sheep, we went from 1,200 ewes to down to 500 ewes. And they're all on our home quarter. So they're probably only ever accessing about 100 acres. Um, the ewes are in the barn if they're lambing or out on pasture if they're maintenance, out on an 80-acre pasture. And they're always kind of rotating between groups of 200. So there's 200 in the barn lambing. That means there's 250 out right now just doing maintenance, maintenance grazing, basically. So the dogs typically are always with the sheep. Um, we also uh, calve out about 1,200 cow-calf pairs. And uh, the kangles in that situation are, are kind of on double duty. The sticky dogs stay close to the yard or in with the sheep that are kind of around the barn area. And the kangles are out during calving. So that's worked really well because we need to protect the calves as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, and how long in how long post calving are those calves susceptible? Um, is there a time when you can? I'd say they're only susceptible the first as newborns. If they're not taken down, you know, we do keep them quite close for calving as well, just on a quarter, which would be about 160 acres. 
Um, we keep them pretty close and tight while they're calving so that we can check easily. Um, but yeah, if they don't get a down cast, pro a coyote probably isn't going to kill them. And um, the dogs have kept the wolves away from our, our calf crop, as far as we know, for, for a couple of years now. So those haven't really been an issue. Okay. So has your change, the change in the style of your operation had any effect on the type of dog that you like or the, well, obviously the numbers of dogs, but uh, mm -hmm. breed or type or characteristics that you prefer in your new operation that you didn't need in your old operation style? Yeah, absolutely. We have changed our dogs a fair bit. Um, I bought uh, three, three pups the last year and a half. Uh, one of them is a Kangol boss, and I, uh, I'm not going to get into a boss argument because a lot of people have things against them, and I don't have a lot of good things to say about them either sometimes. <laughs> um, basically, I got this dog from an excellent working ranch um, from Montana, and they're supposed to be larger and lower energy. And that's exactly what he is. And that's exactly what we need here. We needed something big, but something that's going to stick around close to home and not need to travel. He's an absolute, absolute enormous dog um, that's low energy. So he's very content to lay in the lamp pan, very content to lay outside the use. Pretty well sticks with him if, if there's some kind of threat. He's short and powerful, so he'll go after it, but he doesn't feel the need to travel. Um, that's quite different than the Kangles I mentioned, who are going quite a few miles every night. Um, how did you describe this? The, how did you describe that dog again? A Kangle what? Boss, Boss Shepherd. Okay. So it's kind of a, it's kind of been a made up breed, and I don't agree that it is a real breed either. But uh, I like this dog a lot. <laughs> this is this is a new one to me so um okay. uh, just in case our our phone connection here is not not completely clear could you spell that for me b-o-z b-o-z z z for us americans b-o-z yeah. okay kangle yeah. boz so that's a cross or it is a type a hybrid, uh, a cross that has come to be known to some people as its own breed, but not everybody agrees that it yeah. is. Okay. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Um, so I bought him. Really love him. I think the success of that pup comes from his working line. He's from a ranch down in Montana where they're running thousands of ewes on thousands and thousands of rangeland, and the dogs are, are really working all the time. It's very highly populated with grizzly bears. Um, so that's just, he's a product of his lineage and uh, stellar dog to have here. Um, another one I just purchased a couple months ago is a Sarplanamap. I've never tried those dogs, so. Okay, let uh, me stop you there. Let me stop you there. That's another one I'm not familiar with. And I think that maybe okay. our audience might want a little more background on. Say that one again. Sarplanamap. Okay. Or I'm not even going to repeat that. Okay. Okay. S A R P L A N A N I C, maybe? Okay. Um, they're from, they are livestock guardian dogs from Czech Republic. Okay. 
Fascinating. Um, and they're they're a fluffy, a very dark, same you know, very same kind of landry breed as the the Kangol of the Anatolians. Um, meant just for guarding stocks. Um, so he's uh, she's just a pup right now, and and still bonding in my pen and lambs and youth. So he's stubborn. That's all I know about her so far. <laughs> stubborn and and fairly attentive. So we'll see. And then I just have another um, Rama cross. So I, this round, I picked kind of dogs that I was hoping would be stickier because we don't need the the real strong athletic dogs that need to cover a lot of miles. We just we just don't need that any longer. We do need protection close by, and just a few quarters or a few you know a thousand acres out just during calving. But for the most part, I want them close to the sheep. So I'm I'm really curious now, what led you to seek out some of these other breeds? Um, you, you know, you had experience with four, like three, four different breeds. Um, mm -hmm. What what made you think, let's try something else? Was there something that you didn't like in the breeds you had tried before? Or was it just a drive to say, uh, I'd like to see what else is out there. Maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe there's something that will be really good for our farm. I don't even know it yet. Yeah, maybe a little bit of both. Um, as I mentioned, we lost a couple past members just to old age this last fall. Uh, we lost our Pyrenees, he was about 11. And we lost an Anatolian Shepherd who was 14. So I felt, um, you know, as we lose one, we need to replace it with another similar type dog. Um, the Boz Kangle was pure curiosity. And after talking to the, the rancher, Steve Skelton, um, he just sold me on those dogs, and and I think they're just uh, tremendous, at least his dogs. Um, the Serpaninac, there's a couple of very, very excellent breeders here in Canada, and um, happen to have a litter. They breed great dogs. Uh, they're very thoughtful, raised always with stock. They're for guarding stock. So I thought I should give them a whirl, too. Um, just something we haven't tried and the opportunity came up to get a pup. So mostly curiosity on both, both those breeds. Okay. You're pretty, pretty far North up there, at least to a, a Southerner like me. I think we have some hard winters here in Iowa, but, um, I'm sure it doesn't even begin to compare to yours. Have you run across, across a breed where, whether durability is even an issue at all, or has every breed you have experienced been perfectly fine in your winters without much in the way of uh, winter care or shelter? You know what? Um, we've never had an issue with any dogs struggling in winter. Um, the sheep have windbreak shelter. They don't have over their head shelters. Um, the barn is always open if a dog did want to go back to the barn. There's always shelter available, but I've never once seen a dog willingly go into the barn, unless it's pouring rain, in which case they'll take that invitation. Um, no, they've never struggled. We do feed um, very good quality kibble up here in winter. It's, it's from the dog mushers. So we feed them the best we possibly can to keep them warm. They're usually going into winter with a little extra weight too. Um, we have extreme cold. Usually it's in shorter bouts, a week or two at a time, and then it will warm up a little bit. But um, it seems the dogs are completely content to curl up, 
you know, next to a, a big, large, uh, round straw bale or down with the flock, they seem perfectly content doing that. Um, obviously, if they're very young, we provide a, a house or we have them in a in a barn pen. But um, other than that, they would, they seem to prefer being out in the spot that they choose. Lisa, are you doing any um, breeding of your own dogs? Are you producing puppies at all? Or do you go out looking for the dogs you need entirely? We produced a fair number of pups uh, several years ago, and then I quit. <laughs> um, I had imported, imported some dogs at uh, significant cost from um, Bulgaria and other countries. And um, the unknowns weren't worth the cost. And I also found very few people who contacted me need Kangles or can handle them. So I guess the short story is that I got sick of dealing with people's dog problems for three or four years. <laughs> and um, also sick of a whole lot of people calling who bought pups from other people and they're horribly bred dogs. And I just felt the breed has been pretty well ruined here. And same with the Pyrenees, it's almost impossible to find working lines now, up in Canada anyway. Um, just a lot of really poor breeders have done the dogs great disservices by crossing them with everything. And I just couldn't, couldn't be a part of, of that world anymore. So I'm perfectly happy to buy good dogs and, and we fix everything here. What do you think is the motivation for people to cross uh, livestock guardian dogs. That seems to be almost a unique thing to the livestock guardian dog world. Like there's all these somewhat obscure breeds. We don't, don't really have any land race breeds in the United States, but there's, there are plenty of different types. What, what is the drive to try to make something different? Is, is there room for improvement or is there, there's, it seems to me that there's plenty of breeds out there to satisfy anyone's need for, depending on their landscape and their operation style. So why, why do you think there's this desire to take this breed and that breed and try something new all the time? I don't know. I actually don't know that. Um, we've had crossbred dogs too that have been absolutely stellar dogs. But again, the unpredictability about what you're, of what you're what you're going to get as a result of a cross is, uh, you know, the number one question. Um, I guess my my worst fear is people crossing these dogs with non-livestock guardian dog breeds and selling them as such, which is a big issue up here. Um, and that, you know, cue the phone calls. They're not sure why their Pyrenees, their black border collie Pyrenees is, is not guarding their sheep. So, it's hard to know. I, I think people just can't help themselves. They think they have got a really good thing, and so we should breed it and and make something new and different and more of those good things. That seems to be the dog mentality up here. Is this, I've got one good thing I should get to and breed them. Yeah. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to hack on um, crossing breeds too much because, of course, excellent farm dogs. You know, f farm dogs. We're concerned about whether they work or not and less yeah. about any breed club or registry or particular color or anything like that. Um, but I, I do see, you know, and we came to have all these breeds by crossing different breeds, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
but yeah, I do see that, especially the the crossing guardian dog breeds with non-guardian breeds as being a real problem because um yeah, they're they're probably misrepresented oftentimes in the marketplace as being guardian dogs and they they really aren't. Um and the the instincts are so unique between guardian dog breeds and other types. Um yeah. Which leads me to another question. Do you, do you use working, or pardon me, do you use herding dogs on your operation? We do. Yep. Uh, we've got two right now, two border police. Um, one we've had, uh, he's 12 and we've had him since he was four. So I guess we've had him for six years. And uh, same thing when we got him, he knew more than we did about uh, working border police. <laughs> so he taught us how to use the dog. Um, Thankfully, he he had a mind of his own, and he was able to to go off and do complex tasks by himself, like bring feet through quite a few gates all the way back to the herd. And whether you know whatever we yelled at him, he seemed to do it correctly most of the time. So um, we had him, and because he's getting old and and starting to have some health troubles, we just purchased another uh, just a seven year old female border collie who's also finished because we are not dog trainers. So she seems really, really great as well. And there's just certain jobs we cannot do without the dogs here. Um, whether it's you moving big flocks of sheep or moving bulls is the number one thing or cattle at a bush. It's just a lot nicer when I'm not doing the outrun. And there's a dog to do that because it never fails when we started. We're on the way to church in the morning. There's going to be something out and I have to run through the ditch and put them back in. <laughs> so... Ever since we got the dogs, it's been not me doing the outrun, which has been great. <laughs> that is great. So your body, your border collies um, are used on both cattle and sheep. Uh, they are, yeah. Do, do they uh, make the switch between the two pretty easily? Are they adaptable to both stock? Um, they're pretty good. I would say um, because we mainly used our, our first border collie on uh, cattle, He's a bit bitey on the sheep now, which I don't appreciate when he takes a cheap shot at a at a sheep. Um, but in our in our exact uh, instance here, we need the bite on the cattle and the bull end more than I need gentle on the sheep. So mm -hmm. he gets a little reprimand when he when he bites a you, but we usually need to tell him to bite him when it's time to move cows out of bush or something like that. Um, the one we just purchased, um, she's softer. She's definitely softer on sheep. She has a lot more eye. Um, and we've never tested her on the cows yet. So we'll see how it goes. Okay. But it seems like moving sheep for us is easier than moving some cows. So I'll take the bite on the cows. You, you used a term there that I think our audience might benefit from understanding a little bit better. And that is eye. Um, you know, strong-eyed and loose-eyed dogs, and the border mm -hmm. collies typically are strong-eyed dogs. Is no. that something that you think is pretty important to um, working cattle and sheep, or does it apply more to one versus another? And maybe just describe that for us. Um, I think the uh, again, I'm not a dog trainer, and we use them as tools, but it doesn't mean we know what we're doing with the tools. Um, <laughs> It seems the dogs can use eye. That's usually the position of their body and uh, their movements around sheep. 
without getting physical and having to run in and bite. They can work on flight zones, you know, just using their head and their body positioning. Cattle, sometimes they simply will not move no matter where your dog is sitting, and they need something to run up and bite them on the, on the leg to get them going. So I, that's how we use it is, is we yeah. need them to bite to get cows going, especially bulls when bulls start fighting. Uh, whether you're in a corral, it can be a dangerous, dangerous place. Or moving and they just start fighting on the move and they'll crash through fences and left, right, and center. So a dog needs to run in there and bite and split them up. Okay. Uh, for sh uh, sheep, for the most part, is the eye, uh, meaning their rigidness, their crouch, their intense stare. Is that enough intimidation factor for sheep that they rarely have to bite? Or perhaps they only have to bite in pens, for example? What What's your experience mm -hmm. with that? You know what? In our experience, our sheep, we've had the same flock for, for quite a number of years now, and they usually know where we're going. Um, so there's rarely an instance where I need the dogs to do anything more except I. Rarely. And I don't like it because when they bite a U, the U seems to limp for a few days. It's a, it's a dirty wound, and uh, even if it's just a nip, I don't like it. I don't like them being bit. And uh, if the dog can't do it with I, I usually send a kid in. So, <laughs> um, but less so with cattle, if that makes sense. Sure, absolutely. And again, like I said, we're not we don't we're not dog trainers, and um, we use our border police at a very basic level, I would say. Um, mostly driving, almost never gathering. That's just not how we work stock. It's almost always from the back driving things, um, which has got our coolies in quite a bit of trouble over the years when you're driving and they bring you 10 bulls right to you. Uh, <laughs> that's not appreciated. <laughs> so, so we're learning, you know, I'm sure the dogs know more than we know. Mm -hmm. So we're we're working we're on the same plane when we're working together with with them. They're hoping we don't screw up, and we're hoping they know what we're trying to do. Well, you're you're miles ahead of me, and um, so I really appreciate your experience. And one of the things I've been talking about in this podcast so far is that I plan to get a herding dog sometime in the future, and so. Um, mm -hmm. I love to hear advice from people who are learning lessons the hard way and people who have been training dogs for decades. So do you have any advice for me? I raise uh, sheep and goats primarily, and we are not on thousands of acres of land. We are, you know, um, small <laughs> 10, 20, 20 acre pastures. So do you have any advice for me okay. on even what kind of dog I should look for? What breed of dog I should look for? What should I do about training? Um, what do you, what do you got for me? Oh, well, like I said, we're not dog trainers. We buy everything fully broke as far as border coolies go. And okay, I would never venture to try to train my own. Well, there you um, go. That's that's an excellent piece of advice. So tell me in our audience what fully broke means. And is there some some level of training below or above fully broke? How does that work? I can't even tell you that, unfortunately. I If we... We don't often go looking for dogs. Like we've had the same one for quite a few years and just bought a new one to, to take his place, who is a really also an old dog. Um, 
fully broke to me just means they know the basic commands, like away, come by, they have a down, they have a stay. If they can guard a, great, a gate, that's awesome. They can do a walk up um, and have a good recall. If the dog doesn't have a good recall, I want nothing to do with it. So that fully broke to me. Um, as far as actually working the stock, some dogs, you know, need a little bit of help from the person. And, and I know we often work with the dog where we're positioned or where I send my kids when we're working large groups of stock. They're basically just three other border collies. <laughs> so so that's that broke to me. They know their commands. They listen to the commands you want. Sometimes they do it right. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they think we're, we're an idiot. But... <laughs> eventually we get the job done so i've i've often wondered if uh if someone buy whenever somebody buys a fully broke dog what or fully trained dog and I, i've wondered about this in the hunting dog world too how well those commands and understanding and training sticks and translates to the new owner and the new handler did you have to go work with the your trainer and kind of to kind of make that transition and introduce yourselves as now I'm the boss or was it just automatic like driving a car here are the keys meaning here's the commands this dog knows and you're good to go you know what our first border collie definitely was a big learning curve like I said he taught he was teaching us how to work a dog most of the time um and I I'm sure we're not doing it properly still I think we've just come to an agreement where he knows what we're doing and, and does what we're asking. And uh, he's a very independent dog. So, you know, often we say he figures it out on his own, what we're trying to do. Occasionally he gets us wrong and it's a big issue, a big problem, like bringing 10 bulls to me while I'm standing at a gate that doesn't open. Um, you know, sometimes he gets us wrong, but that's, that's been years of working together. Um, this new dog we have definitely was, was actually trained in South Dakota and uh, has been up here for a few years and, and we're definitely figuring out what means what for us. So when I say down or stay, that means like don't move, don't sneak up and try from another angle. Um, and she's, she's learning that, but definitely there's a learning learning curve and figuring out the best way to communicate with her is mm -hmm. so we'll see we haven't tried her in the bush with with bush cows our other dog's fantastic on that um i guess we'll just see i think well-trained dogs it's it's an easier transition for sure we've had a dog here we bought uh one point who just did not have a recall and if he if things got tense he quit and ran to the yard and that was the ultimate insult to us and some, something we could absolutely not manage is a dog that quits and leaves or a dog that has no recall. We also have that. And those are things we find just not, they're completely unworkable for our ranch. We can't deal with that. We can't spend time on that because we've got lots of other things we, we need to focus on. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful to me. I appreciate that. Um, on our way out the door here, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a question that I don't that doesn't occur to me. I've got a couple of livestock guardian dogs, and um, 
it, it never crossed my mind, but I suppose people might be wondering, since you mentioned recall on your herding dogs uh, and down and all these commands, do you train anything with your livestock guardian dogs? Do you, or is it, you know, are there any commands you give your livestock guardian dogs? Do they understand any of those? Or is it mostly just conditioning to the livestock from the time they're pups and you just let them be who they are? I think there's a saying for that. They said, if you want to teach a tangle to fit, to fit, you throw the ball once and it will bring it back to you. You throw it again, they'll tell you to go get it yourself. <laughs> um, that's how we've kind of treated them is if we don't have commands on them um leash training is uh, something i try to get my kids to spend time on because it's very valuable when we visit the vet and socializing is something we spend a lot of time with like they're they're well loved as as young dogs as old dogs they get groomed by the kids they're we're visited by lots of people here um so more generally socializing, I give them their needles, they get dewormed, um, they get brushed, they get their nails clipped if we have to do that. Quills are a big thing too. We handle them and take out quills. Um, they don't have a recall. We call them for supper. When we put out their food, they all come running for that. So I guess that's somewhat of a recall. Um, but generally not really the, the sit, lie down commands, things like that. Most livestock guardian breeds, I think, will gladly come up to you and flop down on their side for a belly rub if you do that. So yeah. pretty natural. They just flop down. One of the things I found fascinating in just the 18 months since I've had my own li livestock guardian dogs, I had been around other livestock guardian dogs, but just just being able to observe their personalities, that they're, they're like that, you know, like super friendly which is not mm -hmm. something I necessarily expected but it's like they're coming up for a handshake and a smile and then they've had enough of you for a while yep. you know and they'll just yep. go back it's it's like someone you kind of know and you bump into them at the store you, you smile yep. and chat a little and then off to your own lives until the next six months from now when you bump into each other it's what it feels like exactly. a little bit yeah, my 12-year-old Kangle's like the cool kid. He'll come say hi, and then he leaves. <laughs> you always want more. <laughs> but uh, he tolerates us, but definitely not a sucker for attention, no. Right. What's uh, Last question here. What's the difference between socialization for livestock guardian dog with humans so that they're handleable and not aggressive to people? And... Um, being so domesticating them in a way, you know, having them end up being a porch dog, like where's the fine right. line there? Where do, what do you do and not do for a livestock guardian dog that you is different than you would do with a pet? Uh, we, we have a pretty hard line in the sand. It's an imaginary line on our road that the dogs are not allowed to cross when they're pups. So if they, you know, we give them tons of love and attention, they are right in the stock as us. If we don't have lambs on the ground or, and you know, an area in the barn where we can raise them and keep an eye on them, then they're out in the pasture secure with the stock 24 seven. Um, occasionally they, they do want to, they see the kids and they want to come back to the yard and play. 
and they just get chased back by banging a bucket or throwing a bucket or making loud noise and and we yell back to your sheep um and it you know it only takes a couple times and they know that means you better hightail it right back into the pen you came out of as a pup and that sticks even as old dogs i feel horrible yelling at a pup and you see these old dogs cower and run back to a pen of sheep um so it's just been a consistent line where they seem to understand very early on that their life is, is with the flock and we give them tons of encouragement and attention in the flock. But as soon as they come out of that boundary that we establish for them, then it changes. Um, cracking a whip is great too. And that's for their safety as well because we live near this very busy road. Uh, we can't have pups wandering around. Our whole yard is along this road, and and uh, they just can't be there. So back where the sheep are is a safe area, and it's a completely imaginary line on the road, but they know they can't cross. That's tremendous information. Thank you so much, Liesl Lockhart of Candle Lamb and Cattle Company. Uh, Liesl, is, is there anything you'd like to plug or promote? Does your uh, ranch have any products that you sell right off the ranch or um, anything no. like that? <laughs> Not at all, but I will just add um, bite collars. Um, as far as livestock guardian dogs were life-changing for us. Um, before we put those on the dogs, we were losing dogs to, you know, wolves, coyotes, whatever, predators or interpack disputes. Um, and our vet bills were insane. But after that, I don't think we've lost a dog to, to a neck injury or an injury for that matter. So if you're going to run dogs, you know, they're a huge investment for good dogs and uh, they're worth every penny. And I just feel like putting a spike collar on them, no matter where you get it, any, lots of people make them or you can, you know, make one yourself, but really can save the life of that dog and, and give you extra years. So that's all I'd say is, you know, if you're going to invest in a dog, then keep going and, and protect it as well. Great advice. Do you have a favorite brand or a favorite type? Uh, my friend makes them. She's a, a leather worker. So she makes some with harness leather and roofing nails. and um, they seem to, you know, a good quality leather holds up. Some dogs have been wearing theirs for eight years now, and they're still great. So they're just about three inches wide, and and uh, seems like the spikes are about an inch and a half or two inches, and they don't get bitten in the neck anymore. <laughs> so they can survive and, most other things, but not neck wounds. And just to clarify, these are uh, collars with spikes protruding outward from the collar. Um, yes. not, not like a, uh, pinch collar or correction chain that you'd use to teach a dog to, to heal with. This is intended to protect their necks from predators right. and other dogs. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Yep. Excellent. Lisa, what's your website? Um, www.candleranch.com. Okay. And candle is spelled? C-A-N-D-L-L. All right. Liesl, thanks so much for your time today. I learned a ton and uh, good luck with your operation. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Erin. You bet. Take care. You as well. Bye-bye.